0: gold gunner of 2012 but next stop is still afghanistan
1: the army gave me two and a half years off to concentrate on london which i've done i've now done that so it's back to work in september and i'll I'll fall back into the tour rotation with my regiment and i think that's a a tour next september
0: the olympic truth tell that to the syrians and the battle of minden is commemorated in germany but was it a military triumph You can't have failed to notice that the London Olympics are underway. Yesterday, Britain's first gold medal was won by rowers Helen Glover and Heather Stanning in the women's pairs. Heather Stanning is a captain in three two Regiments Royal Artillery. Her commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Craig Palmer, is clearly delighted.
2: Absolutely elated. That is, uh, we always knew that was going to happen. You know, Heather is has been sensational. Uh, over the last uh, few months, and uh, we're just delighted. You know, all her sacrifice over the last two years has now paid off. In terms of uh, three, two, you know, busy, busy regiment, uh, but we managed to release her uh, to go away for two years to train for this. Uh, and I think you know, in terms of qualities, you know, the qualities that she's got, you know, that make her a very good army officer. Uh, we're seeing also now translated into Olympic success. There's clear, I think, synergy between the two.
0: And this was the reaction to Heather and Helen's win from those watching in Camp Bastion and after a two-year break from army life Heather says she plans to go back to work in September
1: the army gave me two and a half years off to concentrate on London which I've done I've now done that so it's back to work in September and I'll, I'll fall back into the tour rotation with my regiment, and I think that's a, a tour next September, potentially.
0: Well, I'm joined by BFPS defence analyst Christopher Lee, turned out sports pundit for the day. Uh, Christopher, did you watch the race?
3: I did, I did. And I tell you something that immediately struck me. Um, as uh, she as said, well, you know, going to fall in line with the tour rotation, uh, back into uh, Afghanistan, maybe. Uh, the army is not going to let its greatest PR asset sort of wallow in some smelly old gymnasium <laughs> in Bastion as a- as a- as a I'm not sure it's so smelly.
0: They've got lots of fresh air out there, They've got lots of
3: fresh- no, no, this is- this is absolutely f- fantastic. And i tell you something, what is fascinating, um, a gold medal is- is bigger PR than a BC, even. And you- You're not going to hide that. This is going to be the big personality thing. The other thing to remember, when a VC uh, goes to some big occasion and everyone says, well, you know, well done, sir, etc. The VC can't wave. He has to be modest. She has to be modest. The gold medal, you naturally sort of go in as a sportswoman and up goes the hand you're Indeed. part of that sort of the great sort of uh, uh, uh victor lodorum
0: and so should she have enjoyed the moment well in a moment we'll be speaking to chris akabusi about army life and as olympic medal winner but first let's go to camp Bastion in afghanistan where our reporter fiona weir was with the troops watching heather win gold hello fiona uh, tell us about the atmosphere during the race were many people watching
1: well, you just heard that big cheer uh, earlier on, and I think that really says it all. I mean, for the troops of 3-2 Regiment Royal Artillery, the build-up for this race had actually started last week when the girls won their place in the final, and by yesterday the atmosphere was a bit like the weather here, it was a boiling point. Um, there was a palpable air of excitement um, when the troops gathered in their welfare tent here in Bastion, and it was decked out in all manner of red, white and blue paraphernalia from Union flags to bunting and you know, blow-up hands and bowler hats. It was very fetching. <laughs> I mean, there was a certain amount of breath holding as the race started because there'd been so much media hype in advance but I've got to say it wasn't long before it was pretty obvious that Heather and Helen were leaving the rest of the field in their wake and when they did cross the finish line the place just exploded and this is what Captain Dave Sc- uh, Scammell had to say after the race
4: Oh that was absolutely fantastic uh, a state of euphoria from, from everywhere, it was just brilliant uh, really really good uh, and just to see everyone just jumping like mad, has been brilliant
0: so, so Fiona, you know, um, those serving in Afghanistan—what actually did they say about what they thought about it all?
1: Well, it's two two battery that are here serving at the moment, and that is Heather's battery. And as you heard there from Captain Scammell, they couldn't have been prouder. And there was a real buzz around the regiment afterwards. It was
5: great, yeah, good, good result. I'm very proud of it.
1: Great win for the regiment. Yeah, fantastic news. Um, one by a mile. Really proud day. It
6: was a very proud day.
1: All your support behind Team, team G B now? Team G B <laughs> Brilliant. Tell me, how does it feel to see somebody who's in your own regiment win a gold medal today at the Olympics? Yeah, it's really good. The women are doing it for the Olympics again, so well done on the women. Really good. Well proud of uh, Miss Allen. Tell me, how was it to see Helen win today?
2: Oh it's fantastic. It's great for Team G B and great for the British Army.
1: Brilliant. Pleased to see her win?
2: Yeah, it's good achievement. Yeah.
1: Did you ever have any doubt?
2: Not really, no. Easy win, wasn't it?
0: Uh, proof there, Fiona, you really can have fun without alcohol. Um, uh, Heather says she is planning to return <laughs> to the army next September. What are her fellow soldiers saying about that?
1: Well, as you can tell from that, they really can't wait to see her back in the regiment, really so they can congratulate um, them, you know, themselves in person rather than sort of via videos and radios and whatever else because, I mean, really they have followed her road to rowing gold with huge interest and pride right from the start.
0: All right, Fiona Wearing-Camp Bastion, thanks for your time today. So, Heather says she plans to stay in the Army. If that's the case, she's likely to deploy to Afghanistan next year. So how do you manage sporting success and a career in the forces? Earlier, I spoke to a former soldier turned athlete, Chris Akabusi, who won three Olympic medals in athletics. I asked him how his athletics career developed while he was still serving.
6: Well, I mean, I'll, I'll always be grateful for for my time as a soldier. Um, I joined the Army 16 and a half. A boy soldier met a guy there called Sergeant E. McKenzie. He was the army athletic officer. He got me into athletics, gave me my first, very first set of athletics bikes and my training program. I went to Germany, trained then with a, a German coach, um, Hansi Came back to the UK after a three year tour, transferred to the army physical training Corps and that's when I joined. That's when I became international then. I met a guy called Mike Smith who was coaching an international guy called Todd Bennett. Trained with them for two years and found myself. British champion and Olympic silver medalist. How
0: tempting was it, perhaps, to leave the army during that time and just concentrate on your career as an athlete? No, I
6: mean, back in, in those days, we were in the main a peacekeeping force. We had um, obviously we had to keep um, keep things um, safe in Northern Ireland, but we were a peacekeeping force, and so the army was a great place to be a sportsman. Many of the people from, from rugby with soldiers as well. And what I found as a, as a PT core instructor that my units were fantastic for me. They would say, look, I could really keep the unit fit between 7 o'clock in the morning and 1 o'clock in the afternoon and the rest of the day is yours. So I could prepare for my training sessions in the evening. So it was the best place you could possibly be.
0: So do you think now it might be a bit more tough if you're a high-achieving athlete because of the commitments that the Army has?
6: Yeah, absolutely no doubt about it. Now, um, now our soldiers are in standing places across the globe. It's very difficult to be in a theatre of operation one minute and to think they're going to be able to perform in the international arena the next. Again, that's why it's, you know, being topical. I think it's uh, Heather Stannard. You know, we've got to take her out to her. I um, mean, she's a, uh, you know, a serving soldier who's um, just won Olympic gold in the rowing.
0: Yeah, Heather Stanning. Um, how hard do you think she will find it to, to balance the two, and what advice would you give her?
6: Well, it does very much depend... The way she sees her career going forward. Uh, one thing for sure, you know, if you're going to be going to a theatre of operation, it's going to be difficult to to maintain a level of training that's got you your gold medal in the first place. I suspect that, you know, she's got an arrangement with the, the military. It's been great PR for the army to have somebody of her standing. She now is an Olympic gold medalist, and if she wants to be able to continue through to 2016 in Brazil, it means a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice, and she that- may then have to find herself in a, a role back in the UK. That-
0: said Chris I mean she's saying at the moment that she really wants to go to Afghanistan on the tour she's due to go on next year so it seems that uh, she's still very committed to the army
6: well yeah that's lovely Uh, I just don't know how many options she's going to get to be rowing if she's in a sandy place in Afghanistan it's a matter of choices if that's what she wants then um, well done you and then maybe that's the Last we'll see, that's that's great. I mean, lots of people make that decision. You know, the Olympics is the pinnacle of any uh, athlete's career. She's gone out. She's an Olympic gold medalist. If she decides that's it, then that's it. Then hats off to her. But it'll be very difficult. I would. Imagine to be able to juggle the two, to be in a the theatre operation one minute and then be an the Olympic
0: winner the next. Former Olympian and soldier Chris Akabusi speaking to me earlier. And um, Christopher, how many people in the armed forces have achieved what Heather Standing and the likes of Chris Akabusi have?
3: Yeah, they may not have got gold, but I mean, you think of it. Bombardier Billy Wells, the bobsleigh teams were half of them were in the army uh, for the Winter Olympics. Captain Mark Phillips, and so it goes on. It is not exclusive uh, to these Olympics. The army is about physical. Education, physical training
0: well, while the world 's attention is focused on the London Olympics, in many places, wars still rage. The Olympic truce is a tradition stemming from the ancient Greeks, which some campaigners are trying to revive. Uh, Christopher, can you briefly explain for those who have never heard of it what is this Olympic truce?
3: Well, if you go back to the origin of the Olympics in the eighth century BC, the idea was that when the Olympics went on, the games went on. Other countries decided that would agreed not to fight each other so that their athletes could actually go to the games and take part safely. Uh, and in modern times, this has become part of a UN expression, a UN charter. At these games, right at the beginning, it was announced, it was, it, uh, the declaration came, there should be an idea that we could all give up fighting while it' on. You know, just think about it. This is what the Olympics are about, people living in peace rather than war. It doesn't work, but it's a good idea.
0: Well earlier I spoke to Dr. Konstantinos Phyllis, Director of International Olympic Truce Committee in Athens and I asked him how relevant the idea is today of the Olympic Truce.
4: In my point of view, uh, Olympic Truce is uh, uh, nowadays uh, more relevant than ever before. But uh, before that uh, and before answering to your question I would like to make clarification uh, that is that Olympic Truce is not an armistice. It is not a pure political process, and there is no guarantee that it will be respected. Let me just remind you that back in October 2012, all 193 member states of the United Nations signed for Olympic truce. Actually, they adopted a resolution on Olympic truce and on the need to respect Olympic truce. Uh, But as we see uh, in uh, Syria, but not also in Syria, in other parts of the world, especially in the African uh, continent, uh, Olympic truce cannot be imposed, and there are no sanctions uh, for offenders. So Olympic truce is a process that is directly related to sports, it does not necessarily bring peace, it is a step to peace, it is a tool tool to promote ideals that highlight the importance of peace and consolidate the means of peace.
0: You mentioned Syria, how important is it against the backdrop of what is happening there at the moment that countries like that still send their competitors to the Games?
4: It is really uh, disappointing uh, to see the situation in Syria escalating uh, in the previous days, especially in uh, the days after the opening ceremony. Uh, This, of course, was something that uh, we expected. Uh, What we didn't expect was uh, what happened between Georgia and Russia back in 2008 at the uh, very first day of the uh, Beijing Olympic Games. Uh, The uh, problem, as I said before, is that uh, we cannot uh, impose uh, Olympic truce, and that there are no sanctions for offenders. And as far as the situation in Syria is concerned uh, and the um, athletes, the Syrian athletes, uh, it's really uh, a matter of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, of which we are part, uh, to decide on whether athletes should be punished or not for what is going on back to uh, uh, their country. Uh, In my point of view... The IOC has taken the right decision, the athletes are there, we should let them compete and it is not up to us to decide whether they should be punished or not.
0: Indeed, and is it possible for sport to help bring about peace?
4: Indeed, and uh, within this framework uh, what we do as Olympic Truth Centre is to familiarise, especially post-conflict societies, with the benefits of peaceful coexistence, particularly through joint sport activities. So in a sense, Olympic truce, although it has not been respected during the Olympic Games, but throughout uh, its uh, uh, very existence, which is from 2000, uh, has been considered and can be considered as a platform for peace. In a way, it is a soft power to achieve sociopolitical goals through the, promo- the promotion of sport ideals.
0: Indeed, and on that note today, Russia's President Vladimir Putin is visiting David Cameron in London. They're going to see the judo together. Do you think they can make any headway with diplomacy?
4: Well, fingers crossed, uh, I hope that they will uh, uh, be able to uh, find a common denominator uh, between themselves, uh, of course, uh, Russia, and now I'm speaking as an in, uh, as an analyst of international relations, as a professor of international relations, rather than the director of the international liberty center, um, has uh, set uh, many barriers uh, to uh, this uh, procedure. Uh, as I said before, let's hope that uh, the Russians... Uh, will uh, find reasons uh, to step back and uh, to uh, leave, in a way, uh, developments uh, and the, the course of events to be defined by the people of Syria, rather than uh, some uh, elites that, uh, as it seems, uh, are not uh, any uh, nowadays relevant to what and their interests are not, at all uh, uh, relevant and they do not coincide in any way with the interests of the people of Syria.
0: Dr. Constantinus Phyllis, Director of the International Olympic Truth Committee speaking to me from Athens. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, President Putin in London for the Olympics. Uh, Christopher, what will they be talking about, he and David Cameron? Uh,
3: well, given half the chance, Putin will be talking about the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> yes. He'll talk about the you know, He's Honorary President of the International Judo Federation and he has a black belt. But, what David Cameron wants to do is to, is to, is to eyeball him over Syria. Um, we heard there it's hoped they'll find a common denominator. I have to tell you there isn't one. There isn't a common denominator. Um, there's only one thing that everybody knows that the russians oppose in the united nations in every other diplomatic forum they oppose the western position they oppose especially the gulf states position of actually feeding arms to the rebels the russians support syria
0: okay we'll talk about syria in a moment um putin's got a bit of a domestic situation going on at home hasn't he he has. A group involving um, something like akin to Girls Aloud. What's going on there?
3: Well, that, that's it. One of the protests... He's got a lot, a lot of protests going on about the Putin regime, whether it was about the way the election went, whether it was fixed or not, etc. And one of these bands, these girl bands, they got up in the cathedral in Moscow and they did a big protest. And they'd been nicked. had been Incredible. caught. They could go to prison. Uh, and people are saying, Putin must be really worried to nick a girl band. <laughs>
0: Rep. With Cajun Bay. Still to come, wives step in for their husbands as the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. Remember the Battle of Minden. But how important was that battle to European history?
5: The FES
0: Zip Rep. The atrocities in Syria have continued unabated. In Aleppo, rebels have come under attack by government helicopters and jets. There are allegations of summary executions on both sides. And President Bashar al-Assad this week marked Armed Forces Day by claiming that the army is engaged in a heroic battle which will decide the destiny of the nation. Let's go to Kim Sengupta, defence correspondent at The Independent who is in Aleppo. Kim, good to speak to you today. Um, There's a bit of a delay on the line, so apologies. Uh, What's the situation
7: in Aleppo at the moment? Well, it, it, it's a very fluid situation at the moment. Uh, the Neither side really appear to be uh, in total control. You've got two um, uh, distinct uh, battle lines. One is in a district called uh, Saladin uh, and the other one is in a district called Hamdanir. There you have got uh, regime forces, tanks, artillery, uh, facing the rebels who are largely armed with, with, with life weapons, AKs, and um, and some RPGs and some mortars, some of the mortars home made. Uh, but in, apart from that, you know, there are sporadic, um, skirmishes uh, throughout the city. Uh, there, there have been uh, a fair number of killings, uh, by both sides and the actual control of, of areas have changed hands quite frequently.
0: Can you tell me anything, Tim, about who you're with at the moment and what they've been saying to you? Hello, Kim. Uh, It appears we do seem to have lost the line to to Kinta Goethe there in Aleppo for probably quite understandable reasons. Well, uh, Christopher... um, Uh, just tell us a little bit more about the significance of this battle in Aleppo and how long you think it may go on, because Kim was saying there that there's no obvious person who has the upper hand at the moment.
3: No, nor will there be. I mean, we saw the same thing in in Damascus, and Aleppo is far harder to sort. Um, One of the things that I was rather hoping he'd go on, uh, because I wanted to ask him, who's got the airport? One of the things you try and do when you take a a major town like that is get hold of the airport. The reason for that is that the other side, in this case the Syrian army, cannot fly in supplies so easy. The thing is, and Kim mentioned it, the so-called rebels are very lightly armed. Even if you take a city the size of Aleppo, which would be an astonishing military uh, capability, but it is sort of urban guerrilla, low-intensity warfare, with that sort of weaponry, there is no way you can hold the city. You can't bombard the city, you can't bombard the others, and that becomes very important.
0: Sandra Green is a former ambassador to Syria, and he joins us now. Uh, Sandra Green, thanks for your time today. Um, Kofi Annan is proposing a Syrian transitional government to include followers of Bashar al-Assad and opposition members. Can that work, that idea?
5: Well, I'm very doubtful about that. I think its time has probably passed. Um, Sadly, both sides have decided to fight, uh, and for the same reasons, two of them. First of all, they both think they can win. And secondly, both of them know that the consequences of losing would be truly ghastly for them and their families. So I'm afraid they're committed to a fight uh, in a society which, of course, is a revenge society. And there are lots of people out there who've been uh, imprisoned, tortured, their relatives murdered by the regime, who are waiting for them, and vice versa.
0: Uh, I think we can go back now to Kim Sangupta, who's in Aleppo. Um, Kim, uh, sorry we lost you just a little while ago, I was just going to ask you really about the kind of people you have been with and what they've been telling you, if you can tell us a bit about that.
7: Well, I'm I'm only half hearing your question. Can I just very quickly say um, something, if it helps, Um, I I heard your guest uh, ask, who holds the airport? Well, the airport is being held by the regime. And uh, the regime is using the airport, the civilian airport, to bring in uh, men and material. Now, um, one thing happened yesterday which which, uh, which added uh, another uh, quite violent dynamic to an already uh, violent scene was that a, a tribal militia from the El Bari tribe, who, who placed adherence to Bashar al Assad, uh, broke a truce and attacked the rebels.
0: And we do appear to have lost Kinsangupta again. We'll leave it there with Kinsangupta from the Independent. Uh, S- Sandra Green, could you just tell us a little bit about whether you think, Bashar al said, would ever countenance relinquishing power?
5: No, I don't think he would. Uh, In any case, uh, Bashar al-Assad is not the key to this situation. His father ran the country uh, with a rule of iron and they were scared stiff of him. No one is scared of Bashar al-Assad. He is the, uh, if you like, the figurehead, really. Uh, And if he were to go, then he would very quickly be replaced by a relative or some general or other. So um, I think the question is really whether the regime... Uh, would uh, be willing to relinquish power and to move into some kind of a transitional government. And my guess is that they would not, certainly not at this stage, not until they were on the verge of defeat. uh, And I think it's pretty unlikely then.
0: Christopher, we've often heard from political leaders that that intervention in Syria would destabilise the region. Who are the players exactly, the countries, the terror groups, and what do they want?
3: The important thing to remember in the region is this. If Assad family, if the regime went, the big, one of the big losers would be Iran and that is very important. Iran needs Syria, Syria needs Iran for example. You then go right down to the Gulf States and the Gulf States are watching very carefully because I, they want to, certainly Qataris and Saudis uh, have been wanting and have been trying to get weapons into the so-called rebels. I don't know if Sir Andrew would go along with this, but I see this almost as a proxy war with the Gulf states fighting Iran through fighting with the, or supporting the rebels, fighting the Syrian uh, regime.
0: Do you see it as such, Sir Andrew?
5: I think there's a lot in that. I think this is a contest uh, to some extent. I mean, apart from the internal pressures which we've mentioned. Uh, it is a, context, a contest between the uh, Sunnis, led by Saudi Arabia, and financed by Ghattah, uh, and the Shia, led by uh, Iran. Uh, but there are other wrinkles as well, because this uh, civil war, which it now is, could very easily spread to Lebanon, where some support, uh, are supported by Iran and some support the regime in Damascus. And it could spread also to uh, Iraq, where, again, there's a Sunni-Shia split, which underlies much of the tension in, uh, in Iraq. So we're looking at a really confused and dangerous situation.
0: And what do you think uh, the consequences could be in all of this for Britain?
5: Well, uh, <laughs> it, this isn't a nightmare situation, really. I think we could see a developing uh, instability in the region, which could possibly spread to the Gulf. Um, if it spreads to the Gulf, then, of course, it has a direct effect on, on oil supplies uh, and on the financial markets. That's a distance off. But to some extent, the uh, Middle East is one ball of wax. And if you have a really serious situation in Syria, as I've described, then that will have repercussions throughout the region.
0: Christopher, what do you think is the best hope for Syria and the region's future? Um,
3: at the moment, there is no best hope for Syria. That is the tragedy yeah. of the whole, the whole business. Uh, If people could stay out of it, that would be a small bit of hope. There's another aspect of this which is not often uh, looked at. There is a mass movement of people, people moving to other countries. And I don't know, but sort of the experience says that when you start to move people on this massive scale, when you are physically destroying a country and a large part of the people, then you are causing one of the sorts of instability that produces war on a much larger scale.
0: Andrew Green, it's Mm. going to be a long time, isn't it, until we really know what the consequences are of what's happening in Syria at the moment.
5: Yes, I think it's going to go, frankly I'm a pessimist, I think it's going to go downhill, I think it's going to spread, Uh, and I think that our ability to influence it in a positive and useful way is extremely limited. One thing I would add, and picking up on what Christopher Lee just said, uh, is that uh, foreign intervention would be stark, raving, mad. It would make a very bad situation worse. We should stay out. There is absolutely no case for any Western military intervention of any kind.
0: Sir Andrew Green, former British ambassador to Syria, thank you for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit British regiments whose predecessors fought in the Seven Years' War more than two and a half centuries ago have been marking the anniversary of the Battle of Minden. The North German town is where an alliance which included the British beat the French in a battle that involved the ancestors of the modern-day 1st Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. One PWOR c- celebrated Minden Day this week at their Paderborn base in Germany. But as Rob Oliver reports, the Olympics meant only a quarter of the troops were there.
2: Some historians describe the Battle of Minden on the 1st of August 1759 as the turning point in the Seven Years' War. France's defeat, it's been argued, helped to ensure Britain's acquisition of Canada and India for the British Empire. The Battle of Minden was a really
5: important battle. It was the high watermark mark of the French advance into Prussia and really set the ascendancy of the British Empire over that of the French, particularly in North America
2: and India. But obviously it was won on continental Europe. Major Chris Charnock of 1st Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment.
5: Hooray. Standard!
2: 1PWRR are descendants of 37th Regiment of Foot who fought at Minden. It's why the Paderborn based battalion has been celebrating the battle's 253rd anniversary this week. But only a quarter of the Tigers, as 1PWRR are also known, are in Germany.
0: We had planned. For a full day of events, being the first time that we've all been together since uh, 2009. Unfortunately, as life dictates, things overtook us, and most of the battalion are actually at the Olympics in London.
2: Commanding officer's wife Sarah Coote is one of three wives presenting soldiers on a depleted Minden Day parade with red roses. The tradition originated at Minden, where British regiments wore wild roses plucked from the hedgerows as they engaged the enemy. But for a battle in which 14,000 died, Minden is largely forgotten in Britain. Many in one PWRR echo Corporal Chris Bramall's view that
6: it deserves more attention. If you think of sacrifices that the battalions have made, and for our battalion in particular, uh, means a lot to us. Uh, and even if it's down to educating people back home in schools you know, about the battle.
3: Oh!
2: tigers hope too that after three years of commitments that have included Afghanistan and now the Olympics, they will finally all be together for Day next year.
0: That was Rob Alva reporting. Um, Christopher, was it important this battle?
3: It was important as far as the seven years war was con- uh, considered. When this battle took place there was another four years before the end of the seven years war and that's when they divvied up some countries like we got Tobago, the French got Guadeloupe back, uh, we got Quebec. But to suggest, for example, that this was the great decider in the British Empire, wow, um, I think that's rewriting history. And, of course, you do rewrite history and regimental history. I suppose it's Sometimes important
0: for regiments to actually commemorate these dates, though, isn't it? As so it's part of their history.
3: I tell you, a couple of years ago, uh, when it was the 250th anniversary of this, uh, there was an army PR sheet said this was the greatest battle and it was even more important than Waterloo. Well, that's what it was, an army PR sheet. And I, I shouldn't read your history from that. But what is important is this whole concept with everybody, uh, with all three services, they do latch on to battles, they do latch on to successes. Minden, the British didn't do very well at all, quite frankly. Sackville, the general, was actually sacked... Because, I mean, he, he didn't come up to snuff at all. So, I mean, but I I still think that a good guest night, a good a, a good mess night, uh, you can rewrite history for that as so long what, as the port's good.
0: What do you think? Do you think the Battle of Minden was important? Get in touch at BFBS Sit Rep on Twitter and you can give us your thoughts. We we'll welcome them all. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and, of course, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that subject and others. Follow us on Twitter at BFBS Sit Rep. We're back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. But from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now.